This isn't a PowerPoint. This is actually getting into communities, getting dirty, rolling up your sleeves, working with people in communities and understanding how they live. And if you can't do that, then it's probably not the right business for you. But if you can, it's not a financial arbitrage business. It's a real care, health services, social services, whole person model. And the rewards are not just financial. The rewards of building an impactful transformational company are enormous. Welcome to The Other 80. I'm Claudia Williams. On this podcast, we talk about how we can build health in America beyond medical care. Only 20% of overall health is determined by medical services. We are here to talk about the other 80%, housing, food, social connections, and how to move rapidly and equitably towards whole person health in this country. Integrating medical and social care is especially critical in areas like mental health, maternal health, and long-term care. We generally don't need new science or treatments, but we do need to bring care to people the way they live in their homes and communities. There are a host of startups in this space that are expanding access to mental health, making social service referrals, and using peer support and home visiting to bring care to people how and where they live. Our guest today is Andy Slavitt. He funds and partners with many of these companies through Town Hall Ventures. But you probably know him for his roles leading CMS in the Obama administration and COVID strategy in the early days of the Biden presidency. He's also the host of the award-winning podcast, In the Bubble. I'm interested in Andy's insights as a policymaker, but also his views about building companies in the Medicaid and whole person health space. So please enjoy this conversation with policymaker, investor, and podcaster, Andy Slab. Just a little bit of background on the podcast that launched a couple weeks ago. And the focus is on moves to whole person health in, in integrating medical and social care especially in Medicaid, but also increasingly, I think this is relevant in Medicare, especially as policymakers look at risk adjustment changes. I want to start in the Medicaid investment space because I think you're uniquely able to see both the policy drivers of that and kind of the real business issues. And I think we've known for a long time that MA, Medicare Advantage, is a huge investment opportunity big profits to be had there. And that explains, I think, some of the difference of investment in Medicaid and Medicare, meaning mostly managed care is where the opportunities lie. But I'm increasingly feeling like Medicaid has just gotten a bad rap in the investment space. So maybe just to start with, what do you see as the real core hard challenges of both investing in and being a company in the Medicaid space? And then we'll move to the opportunities after that. Well, first of all, I completely agree with you. It is a place that people avoid. And I think in large part, people avoid it because it just doesn't comport with the way they live their lives. So people can kind of empathize with what it's like to grow older. They can empathize with employer-based care. They can empathize with, you know, the devices on their phone. And, you you know, many investors are, let's face it, quite well off. And so, you know, they're looking for the next Peloton to self-actualize their life even 1% further. But that doesn't mean that those are the most important priorities for the country. 
you know, investors either t- t- tend to think of things one of two ways. The traditional way is, where can I make money? And so, okay, MA sounds like a like a like a rich pot of places to make money, and that that doesn't always mean that the, you're creating companies that are adding real value. The other way is to look at it and say, what are the big challenges that need to be solved, and can we solve these challenges in a better and a more creative way um, than that are currently being solved uh, because we know these people, these populations better, and the way we look at the world is there, we don't have one healthcare system in this country. We kind of have two. You know, if you're employed with a salary and get employer benefits, you know, you've got reasonable savings. Um, that describes about half the country. In, the, in that situation, you have access to preventative care. You have access to primary care. You have access to specialty care. Your chronic disease burden is relatively low. You live to be in, in about your mid, the mid-80s on average. But the other healthcare system, the one that um, you ha- you're in, if you work an hourly job, if you are um, a single parent, if you are uh, older and you've spent through your assets, if you have a disability, describes about 130 million people in this country. It's not small. You have no access, generally speaking, to prim- primary care, even less access to specialty care, a chronic disease burden that's two to three times higher than the first group. And you live about eight to 10 years less um, is the sad reality in the same country. And the most interesting insight, Claudia, to me is that people in the first group and people in the second group have the exact same medical conditions. Diabetes is diabetes. High blood pressure is high blood pressure. Kidney disease is kidney disease. It's not a function of do we need new science to do better in order to shorten that eight to 10 year gap in life expectancy. We don't need new science. We actually just need to bring care to people the way they live. So it's about equity and access. Um, It's about something far simpler. It's about saying what we're waiting, when we're waiting for you to get sick and use the emergency room, we could be investing in prenatal care. We could be investing in uh, mental health care, pediatric care, um, all these kinds of things that make an enormous difference because we're going from zero to something. We're not going for that 1% more self-actualized experience. We're going from zero to something and something good. And so working with companies who say, I have an idea for a physical, behavioral, social model that wraps around people's lives around a specific need that they have. And I know this community well because I've lived in this community and I, and I know these people well. I have an idea to make this better. Um, that's the stuff I get excited about. And, you know, not all those things have potential to do what they think, but increasingly because you have uh, Medicaid-managed care, because you have duels, because you have CSNPs, because you have CMMI and, and a lot of the models that they offer – there are increasingly ways to say, yes, if I go invest in these communities and help get people a better answer, um, I can make a margin, not necessarily a huge margin, but I don't think you've got to make a huge margin in healthcare. There's a lot of people to be helped. That is incredibly compelling, and I agree completely. And I think part of what you're saying is like, we need meaningful companies that don't want to make the top buck, but that are making a huge impact in the world. Let's imagine I am a potential founder and I'm convinced by that. But then I go talk to other founders in the space. And they say, yeah, but it's, churn is really hard. Selling state by state is really hard. 
being able to scale in the absence of a policy mechanism that kind of acts once and goes across all the states is hard. So let's unpack that a little bit, because I think those are real pragmatic challenges. What are some of the ones that you think are most important? And are there ways to kind of address them? I think people who haven't worked with government before uh, tend to shy away and tend to feel like, oh, maybe it's not a good thing to do. And the reality is, if you're in healthcare, whether you know it or not, in some form, you're a government contractor. So as for 50 states, let's start with that. If I told you you were an employer-based business and there were only 50 employers in the country to sell, you'd say, oh, that doesn't sound hard. And you'd probably say some are good, some are bad, some will be aligned with, some we won't. Some have budgets, some don't. Some have good people, some don't. That's exactly how it is. It's, you know, states are just, stop thinking about them as governments and start thinking about them as customers. Start thinking about them as people who have needs, varying degrees of resources, varying degrees of expertise, and a need for a solution. And yes, I think for people who haven't been involved in government before, it feels like, oh, there's all these external factors, like a legislature and a governor and all that. And that has kept people away, but those are those are kind of moats in many ways for people who want to who who understand it want to go at it. Now, I would never tell anybody that you're going to go. You should go if you're working in Medicaid in all 50 states necessarily. Um, certain states are have certain needs, timings right in certain states, but the federal government puts up you know a 70 percent or so depending on the state match. Um, you've got literally millions of people. This is the number one. Uh, budget item that governors want to save money on. I don't care if you're a red state or a blue state. If you're working in Medicaid agency, you care about people and their health and solving problems, whether it's everything from foster care to maternal health to health care for the medically fragile to long-term care. You get nothing but problems. We got a list of problems that mile long. So if someone comes into your office and your HHS administrator your, or your uh, a Medicaid director and says, I've been working on how to solve some of these problems or one of these problems and I have some ideas. You're going to take that meeting and you're going to have that conversation. You got to be operational. This isn't a PowerPoint business. This is actually getting into communities, getting dirty, getting rolling up your sleeves, working with people in communities um, and understanding how they live. And if you can't do that, then you know, it's probably not the right business for you. But if you can, it's not a financial arbitrage business. It's a real healthcare, health services, social services, whole person model. And the companies that I've seen do it well, and we have um, I, we have a number of them who do it well to varying degrees, the rewards are enormous. And the rewards are not just financial. The rewards of building an impactful transformational company are enormous. Specifically on this kind of concept of whole person health and in other episodes, we've talked to people like Mandy Cohen, we've talked to the people designing the CalAIM initiative in California. Several of your portfolio companies are in this space, whether it's social service referrals or bringing meals to folks or really focusing on the housing piece. And I'd love to have you share some of those stories of what are those companies working on? What are they experiencing? What are the impacts that they're starting to see and have? City Block is another example for you, Unite Us. Could you share a couple of those examples of companies working in this space and what are they delivering? How are they scaling? What impact are they having? Sure, I, I can. And, and, I, and I, I'll, I'll, let me just give you a quick selection of a few. We have, you know, 30 companies that we have investments in and they are all in one form or another 
figuring out how to take a complex population or a population that's been ignored and meet needs like that. You mentioned city blocks. Well, I'll start there. They're now over 100,000 members in seven states. They take fully capitated uh, risk on the most complex of populations. And that means people who have severe mental illness. That means people who are homeless or are, are moving between locations. That means people who have enough chronic conditions that they are really slowly dying. Uh, and, and it means people who live in neighborhoods and communities where they have very low trust with the healthcare system and very low access historically. You know, their model is very, very simply, they pioneered this notion of hiring people from the community, giving them technology, having them pound the pavement, work the streets, build trust. They have the highest engagement of any company that I've seen in any space because they build these trusted relationships and they solve real problems for people. So if you're unhoused, it's almost impossible in New York, for example, which is one of their markets to find housing. But there are 2,500 beds in New York, just to give you an example, that are reserved for people with severe mental illness. Problem is, if you get severe, if you're homeless and severely mental ill, go good luck go finding a psychiatrist to fill out an application for you. They have psychiatrists that work do nothing but find these folks and fill out these housing applications for them and help get them into housing. And as we know, housing first. Um, there's a lot of evidence that that makes an enormous difference. Um, another investment we have is a company called Plume Health which serves uh, the transgender population. It's the largest provider of care to transgender Americans and the largest number of transgender providers. Um, something extraordinary happens when you join Plume. If you, if you need gender-affirming care and you're not getting it very well or you can't find a provider that, that doesn't recognize you, it's an enormously um, deflating experience. I mean, imagine not feeling not seen or heard or misidentified. People who join Plume within 30 days this is the most one of the most remarkable things I'm going to say on the show. See an 80% reduction in depression and anxiety um, after 30 days at Plume. And that's a reflection of the fact that they're starting from an awful, awful, awful place. And nobody sees them and nobody's helping them and nobody's connecting to them. And so the transformation is almost overnight. Um, and as you as you know, Claudia, this is the population with the highest suicide um, rate of any of any group in the country. So they're doing important work there. You know, Eleanor Health um, provides whole person care for people with substance abuse disorders. Um, they have a harm reduction, which I know everyone on this who's listening to this knows what that means, whole person model, um, which means that they wrap a whole bunch of services around folks. And it's highly, highly evidence-based. They measure everything. They measure every encounter, um, every bit of progress. And um, they don't just look at kind of, do you have a positive or negative urine sample? Um, that's not like the, there are many, many, many more important things like craving reduction and anxiety and depression and um, things that, that are part of people's journey when they have an addiction. They understand addiction to chronic illness. So they treat it the same way they treat you if you had cancer, with compassion, um, without blame, um, with all kinds of resources. And, you know, they have 30 odd clinics. And what's remarkable to me is the, the rate of improvement is extremely consistent in every clinic because they do things in a way that's just better. It's about a 70% reduction of cravings, um, improvement in um, job readiness. And then the fourth company I'll talk about, just to give you a scattering, um, is a company called uh, Spark Pediatrics, which um, works 
um, to care for kids that are born med- with medically fragile medical conditions on Medicaid. So picture this, you're a parent, um, you have a child that you've been waiting for your, your whole life, you're excited and they're born needing a trach and a wheelchair. They've got physical disabilities, but they're entirely mentally whole. They have the same hopes and dreams. And as a parent, the last thing you want to see is that dream crushed. Well, the reality is what happened in this country today is it's so hard to get through the administrative system and paperwork and get home-based care for your child. Um, And even if you do, um, keeping someone um, is almost impossible. The divorce rate is almost 100% within the first several years of having a disabled child. Spark sets up an incredibly interesting, humane program that, that's a lot like PACES for, for elderly, where they help the entire family. They provide um, a set of services in a setting that uh, they socialize kids, and they basically um, sponsor the belief that everything, uh, so much is still possible. Even uh, we all have our limitations, but so much is still possible. And the, and the, the turnover rate is about zero. Um, unless they graduate kids into other types of programs. So those are four of the 30 companies we've invested in. Uh, it should give you a flavor for the fact that you've got, at its heart, an entrepreneur um, or a, or a um, team of people that see a problem, care about the problem, want to go deep in solving that problem, want to really understand it. And we have to have a certain willingness for people to experiment, um, for people to try to get it right. Um, and in all of those cases and many others, whether it's maternal health, mental health, medical, you know, transitions of care, base programs, you know, there are so many people in need of better care. And these models are so widely available that we get extremely excited. And that's why I kind of walk out on, on some of these, some of these models. And the goal is to make them national, right? The goal is to start them, find them see what works with some population and figure out if you can make them the prevailing model in the country. What are the areas, you've, you've mentioned a few domains that I think are incredibly important and, and almost like so obvious. Are there other opportunities you're seeing that could become category killers that, that folks haven't been thinking about enough in the Medicaid space? Like, What are the things that are kind of in your mind as you go to bed at night that you'd like to see more, more investment in companies around? Well, the team does a ton of work trying to understand these problems and trying to um, understand what the solutions are, but whether it's meeting with entrepreneurs or doing research. Um, and I would say, you know, there are a lot of broad categories where you go, yeah, we could do better um, at, at, at 30,000 feet. You mentioned mental health and, and we've talked about that. You know, women's health, we could do a lot better. Um, Early years, the first three or four years of someone's life, we can do a lot better. You know, helping people as they get frail and forgotten and lonely, we can do a lot better. You know, people who have developmental disabilities, we can do a lot better. People who are veterans, who are back home uh, after serving, we can do a lot better. People who live on um, Indian reservations, we can do a lot, lot better. There's no shortage of problems. Um, And the question is, you know, which ones, the foster care system. I mean, I'd be hard-pressed for, for you and I if we spent the rest of this conversation trying to find, well, that really works well. Let's just leave it alone. Um, there's not a lot of that. Um, rural health, which is another example, um, we could do a lot better. Um, now you, people are have to get creative and try different models, try different approaches. Um, but 
the ones that ring true to me are the ones that come outside in, the ones that begin with, you know, if someone begins a conversation with me uh, or any of us and says, hey, Andy, here's a neat way to make money, you've lost me already because there are, there are plenty of ways to make money in this world. And sadly, there are plenty of ways to make money in healthcare that don't, 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 don't accomplish a lot. But if you come to me and say, you know what, I really understand the needs of um, rural Americans or or moms on Medicaid, or I, we really understand this, or foster kids. And we think there's a better way, and we only have a small amount of data, but here's what we've seen. Uh, you're going to pique our interest, and we're going to say, well, what help do you need? And that help may include capital from us, that help may include policy changes, that help may include other kinds of things. Um, but that's kind of what we're there for. That's our platform. On a slightly different tack, but you made me think about it. I've always wanted to see more efforts and I think they're challenging to produce that create an, a potential financial impact and social impact knit across social services and health, whether that's impact bonds or something else. And as we look at whole person health, you begin to to estimate that. But some of the benefits are really going to fall well outside the healthcare. I mean, they're going to fall on the jail budgets of counties. They're going to fall on on school how how schools perform. And I'm I've I've always kind of stepped up to that and then stepped away because it's just so complicated. But I'm curious if you see models of bringing together the impacts and the benefits across these silos as something that has a future. I think our, our perspective is there, are, and, uh, and I've advised a number of states and governors on, on this topic before, but having, number one, a pool of community dollars that you capture from the managed care plans, Oregon, Oregon is one of the pioneers in this. It says, you know, if we create savings, we're not just going to use it to pay bonuses to providers. We're going to create a pool for the community to be overseen by the community that can that can um, invest in programs and public health. And rather than taking the money out of the state and moving it to Minnetonka or Indianapolis or Hartford, Connecticut or wherever, you know, you've got to leave a certain amount in. Um, and it goes towards health improvement. Um, the other thing I've seen um, is you talked about, you know, impact bonds. Um, you know, I think, you, you know, New York is considering, and I would advise states to consider, if you participate in the Medicaid program in the state, uh, maybe you should be required to hold in your portfolio a certain amount of bonds that go towards this sort of um, public health, um, public good outcomes. So, um, you know, you're investing in bonds that renew and these bonds, the money from these bonds are used by the state to, to cover the things where nobody's going to get a real return. And yet they're not big enough um, to be a, a, a solely, solely a government function. Um, and th there are a lot of those areas of public health where we're like, gosh, someone needs to make this investment. And the market doesn't always work and people don't love funding the government. So those things come up and I would ask more of people that are making money serving low-income people or serving anybody in my state to participate in some of those kinds of things. I can't leave this conversation without focusing on some just straight-up policy issues. And um, I don't know if you saw it, but there was a Twitter conversation where people had a lot of suggestions for things they wanted to hear your take on. So I'll I'll dig into a couple of those. Obviously, a lot of... Uh, our gains in, in insurance coverage could be challenged with the upcoming Medicaid redeterminations. 
And I think there's a lot of worry that folks are flat-footed, that there's not enough um, energy going into this. Are there changes you think could be made like within the next two to three months on the executive branch side that would temper the losses? I mean, look, let's just start with the problem here. The problem, you know, is if you put numbers around it, is there are about 15 million people that estimates suggest are going to lose coverage. 8 million of them are people that are, may no longer qualify for Medicaid. And those are people who, um, and by the way, I think if, if everyone doesn't know real quickly, the, 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 the national emergency uh, really prohibited a lot of actions from being taken against low-income people, including kicking them off Medicaid, kicking them out of their apartments and so forth. Um, those go away. And as those go away, people are going to face a new reality. But the, so, so the, those 8 million people are, qualify for very highly subsidized coverage on the exchange, and, and, and that can be worked. And then there's another 7 million people, um, and this is the really interesting part of this problem, who estimates are do still qualify for Medicaid, but will be dropped because um, they won't comply with the administrative paperwork in time. And there are some states that are going to work really hard to get those people enrolled. And there are some states that are going to work really, really hard not to get those people enrolled um, because it costs money and it sort of depends on their philosophy. And I won't pick on any governors, but there's one governor that has come out and pretty much said we're going to get people out, as many people off as quickly as possible. I don't think there are practical policy levers to change to change the you know ending of this um, redetermination um, suspension. But I do think there's going to be... Um, Everything that can be done should be in the realm of extending the time, providing assistance, lowering the administrative burden, and engaging partners. I will say, you know, I'm proud of to say that uh, of like what some people are doing. Walmart, for example, which which a lot of their customers are going to redetermine, has a is setting up a full uh, service to help people um, get their redetermination done um, with. Uh, for, without cost, and they're working with different health plans uh, to do that. It's, um, so people need to lean into this challenge. Um, and um, I think, uh, you know, it is, um, but there's no doubt that there's going to be people um, that are covered today that are going to lose coverage, and we just got to minimize that number. And, you know, the exchanges now serve 15 million people. They are highly subsidized. Um it's not as good a coverage as Medicaid coverage, but it's broader coverage. So perhaps we'll have, by broader, I mean broader network coverage. So perhaps we'll have exchanges that are, you know, working hard on this. I've seen cooperation agreements between Medicaid plans and exchange plans. Uh, I don't know what's going to come of it. And I think, I mean, a, a dark reality underneath all this is that you called it enforcing, you know, bureaucracy on poor people. And that is an explicit strategy to lower budgets. And so as long as you, you are in a state where your budget is tight and there's not political support for Medicaid, the Medicaid enrollment and for that place in the budget, that will be a strategy that you use. And so it's hard to, it kind of brings up this whole question about support for Medicaid and is there, is there a way to just increase that more broadly? And that leads me to my second question. With the discussions about potential cuts to the federal budget, I think many people have maintained that Medicare and Social Security is off limits for, for cuts. 
Medicaid has not had that same uh, that same coverage in the conversation. If we were to try to launch a campaign to include Medicaid in the set, and maybe it's just impossible politically, but what what arguments might be successful, whether at a federal or a state level, to extend that kind of no touch zone to Medicaid? Because um, I haven't so far. I'm very worried about where things are headed. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because even though Medicaid doesn't resonate as much politically with people as Medicare does, because again, people can see themselves aging, but if they haven't been low income, um, they may not get it. Um, when you look at the popularity of the Medicaid program, it's incredibly popular. Uh, people are really supportive of it. And, um, you know, attempts by um, the Republican Congress and Donald Trump uh, to, to try to cut back Medicaid pretty severely ran into a buzzsaw. People didn't like it. Uh, it's also funded very differently. You know, it's funded through through matching grants and through states. And so it's a bit of a different animal for people as they think about politically as they age. So I, I, I hear you. I do actually try to add Medicaid into the conversation where people say no cuts to Medicare and Medicaid. I mean, Medicare and Social Security. Um, it's a practical matter, though. The cutting in, um, comes uh, largely from the states um, and in in uh, in Medicaid anyway. So I think you know, there's a lot of work that has happened in different places to uh, make sure that we're um, we're supporting Medicaid. The other answer to your question, Claudia, is just reminding people of some facts. You know, 50% of births in this country today are are or to moms on Medicaid. Um, these are kids who want to have a good start in life. I don't care who you are, what your pol- politics are. Um, people who are, who live with disabilities, you know, okay, if you're Democrat or Republican, you know, you, you, you've got to understand people with disabilities don't have other choices and it's the only way to be funded. Low-income seniors uh, and nursing home care funded by Medicaid. Um, so we tend to think of that as Medicare, but the public does at least, but we all know it's, it's Medicaid. And then, you know, working Americans that can't find insurance. So like these are 70 million people who, we ought to remind people who they are because I think people's image still sometimes goes to um, um, something that they can be dismissive of because they could say, well, this is some unknown, unnamed person. And there's some, there's some racial prejudice and some bias in people's thinking. So it always surprises people when I tell them that, you know, in, in West Virginia, 60% of Medicaid beneficiaries are white. And around the country, about 40% of Medicare beneficiaries are white. Not that that should matter, but for people who kind of um, are uh, have this sort of either subliminal or overt prejudice, uh, they just need to know the facts. Medicaid is there for everybody. Uh, it's a it's a commitment from our country. We've made it since 1965. Before that commitment was made, we had a system where the, the, there weren't even cracks. People were falling through. There just was nothing uh, for people, and we can't do that. Yeah. I was struck by some recent uh, reports about credit scores and also about medical debt and the impact of Medicaid expansions on bankruptcy and medical debt. And I've been wondering if the kind of economic well-being of families is also a part of the argument that needs medical debt, home ownership, ownership, um, job security, um, the health of the hospitals, the economy of the region, um, and then maternal outcomes, child outcomes, cancer outcomes, cardiac outcomes, 
all of those things, every single one of them demonstrably different and improved in a place like Kentucky and all the places that passed Medicaid expansion. Just compare Kentucky to Tennessee, one off. Kentucky expanded, uh, Tennessee didn't. Um, but it's true in every single study, all of those outcomes, every single one of them that are quality of life and health related are better under Medicaid expansion. And it makes sense. If you put a little more money in people's pocket, put a little more security underneath them, um, they're going to live their lives. They're going to take that risk and uh, take a better job. They're going to, you know, not worry as much. They're going to, the kids are going to be healthier and more stable. All those things. There was even a recent study showing rates of child abuse uh, went down when people are insured, which, you know, makes sense because there's less stress and there's more support for that family. So one final kind of policy, well, maybe two final policy questions. One, almost all states now have transitioned their Medicaid programs to managed care with a couple of exemptions. And yet, I think among some folks, there's really lingering questions around the efficacy and impact of those plans. If I were a governor, how would I go about evaluating whether plans are adding value? And if I find they're not, what would I do about that? Well, um, this is true of Medicare plan, Medicaid plans. It's true of Medicare Advantage plans. It's true of anybody. It's true of, it's true, quite honestly, of um, defense contractors. Anybody that we as a government hire to do a job in a, through a public-private partnership, um, we need to hold to very high standards because we're paying them taxpayer dollars to deliver things the taxpayers expect. Um, and um, that's um, really, really an essential commitment. Now, I'll tell you that, like, um, for people who, who want to say, well, do, do, should we really be doing this in the first place? You know, the answer to some extent is that while each state can do things their own way and do things differently, the resources at a federal or state governor are very low. low. I was, when I was running CMS, we had a trillion dollar budget and 6,000 people. So, you know, all you can really do is partner with people who are, um, you know, in in the in the line of sight of delivering services and care to people. Um, so increasingly, there I think there's a focus on better RFPs. RFPs that say um, you need solutions to problems we have, whether they're whether you're in New Mexico and it's an Indian reservation, whether you're in Georgia and it's um, maternal health, whatever it is, um, and 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 expect more um, from from the private sector. Um, to deliver, expect innovation, um, force people to come to the table with better ideas and review what they do and review their work. And that's kind of where innovation can sometimes be of help. Yeah. Well, let's transition to the final two questions that I ask every every guest. The first is, what is a leadership lesson you learned the hard way? You know, I think it all comes down to things that I think we think we know, uh, but sometimes we forget. Accountability, culture, clear communication, clear expectations, talking straight, well-defined roles. Um, and I learned those lessons. I don't know if I learned those. I would say being involved in two major turnarounds, one for the ACA and one for um, the COVID program, um, Help me understand that in those kinds of times, those kinds of crises, people are willing to forgive the, the general normal rules. 
So you could basically pick up the phone and get stuff done much faster. And the lesson it taught me was that um, in in any time, um, if something's important, even if it's not a crisis, you're talking about helping serve low-income communities and all those things, this, the same should apply. Um, and so those disciplines, culture, accountability, clear communication, giving people a sense of belonging and psychological safety so they can be part of the team, um, those apply in almost every setting imaginable. And you know, now I, I, you know, I probably approach every everything I do with those kinds of uh, values in mind. Finally, is there a question you you wish I had asked you? And if so, what was it, and how would you have answered? Well, look, I think I think if I understand your show, it's it's all about the intersection between what we do in healthcare every day and the other things that happen in people's lives and those those parameters and those policies because we clearly underinvest in many of these other areas like housing and trauma um, care and other things and that they, and they then show up in the healthcare system um, and other countries do it differently and better i think there are if you can't get more money out of government directly then this is where innovation could play a role you know, and I think the question that, you know, you want to be asking is where should the lines be drawn? The lines are clearly moving. You know, we're, we're now clearly allowing non-healthcare investments into healthcare work. So I think, you know, you, not just with me, but with all of your other great guests you have on the show are going to really be instrumental in helping us wrestle with that question of where does that line get drawn and how do we draw it? What are the creative ways to draw it well? I want to thank Andy Slavitt for joining me on The Other 80. One big thing I am taking away from this conversation is that the stakes are incredibly high right now. First, delivering whole person health through Medicaid is only possible if people are actually covered by the program. But an estimated 50 million people risk losing coverage with the end of continuous enrollment on April 1st. That's almost 20% of the 85 million people who have Medicaid coverage today. Second, Medicaid is a great space to build meaningful companies. It's a huge market, and it's where the needs and opportunities for impact are greatest. Many of you have reached out with suggestions of guests and topics to cover on The Other 80. Keep those suggestions coming. You've also shared that the time is right for these conversations about moving rapidly and equitably towards whole person health in this country. So let's keep talking, and thank you for listening. This podcast was created by me, Claudia Williams. My podcast producer is Avery Moore-Kloss. Check out the show notes for links to Town Hall Ventures and Medicaid Facts and Figures. There is more information on my background, this podcast, and our guests on our website, www.theother80.com. Until next time, I'm Claudia Williams. <laughs>